after the Robertson panel, within a year of that, the, the guys at Blue Book started getting these um, memos, really, from, from the bosses up in the Air Force to, to bring the unknowns down to 5%. And then throughout the, the late 50s, I mean, they were getting it down to like 1% and 2%. In order to this mean their um, investigative techniques had improved? Well, no, absolutely not. If anything, they got worse. Um, but what they did do was, of course, force fit all kinds of possible explanations. Anything that could remotely be considered, you know, if you didn't investigate, hey, a lot of things are possible. And since they didn't do any investigations, uh, everything became Venus or weather balloon or, or possible balloon. Or And if it was a possible, then in the subsequent editions of the reports, the, the possible would be eliminated and it would just be, you know, alone. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is April 29th, 2006. Chances are you're hearing this after May 1st because uh, we have crashed the BenallofAmerica.com website. We have completely blown it out of bandwidth for the month. An unexpected but somewhat expected occurrence. Uh, the, the growth of the site has been just tremendous. And every month it seems we get closer and closer to the limit, and this month we finally smashed the barrier of bandwidth, and the good folks who host BenallOfAmerica.com put the hammer down on the site, shut us down for the weekend. We'll be back on May 1st. Chances are you're listening to us then. Uh, this problem will be corrected. Don't worry about that. Uh, it was more of a pleasant surprise, I suppose, because it is a sign of uh, sure growth for the website. This week, we have for you an amazing interview, Richard Dolan, part one of two. We sat down for a lengthy conversation about a ton of topics. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Richard Dolan is the author of the amazingly well-researched UFOs and the National Security State. Most people who follow ufology are familiar with this book. If you haven't heard of the book or if you haven't read it, you've got to read it. It is amazing. It is a veritable history of ufology. It's the kind of book I wish I had discovered like two years ago. It filled in tons of gaps, tons of details. And I had the opportunity to read the book, uh, I'd say like two, three weeks before we did the interview with Richard Dolan. I was reading the book over the course of a couple weeks. And then we had the interview. So all this stuff was fresh in my mind. I brought... Uh, a bunch of questions I wanted answers to that were sort of just some of the more obscure points in the book and sort of overarching big picture type analysis. I think you guys are going to really dig that. And of course, the usual focus on uh, the field of study itself and uh, the UFO groups and some of the major names in ufology from back in the day and, you know, stuff I hadn't heard before and wanted to find out more about. 
And that's all in this week's edition. But for those of you unfamiliar with Richard Dolan, here's a little bit of background on him. Richard Dolan was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1962. He holds an MA in History from the University of Rochester and a BA in History from Alfred University. He earned a Certificate of Political Theory from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Prior to his interest in anomalous phenomena, Dolan studied U.S. Cold War strategy, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In 2000, he published a 500-page study, UFOs in the National Security State. This is the first volume of a two-part historical narrative on the national security dimensions of the UFO phenomenon from 1941 to the present. Included are the records of more than 50 military bases relating to innumerable violations of sensitive airspace by unknown objects, demonstrating that the U.S. military has taken the topic of UFOs seriously. Dolan has published numerous articles on anomalous phenomena, science, and the intelligence community for UFO magazine. In 2003, he helped found Phenomena, a magazine dedicated to leading-edge issues pertaining to science and society, and for which he continues to serve as senior editor and regular contributor. Dolan has appeared many times on television documentaries and radio programs on the theme of UFOs and government disclosure. He has been a featured speaker at numerous conferences, including the International UFO Congress, the International MUFON Symposium, the Aztec UFO Symposium, and others. His website is www.keyholepublishing.com, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E, publishing.com. So as you can see, he's held in high regard in the UFO field. I'd call him almost a ufology historian, and it was really awesome to get a chance to speak with him for such a lengthy interview. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll, folks. This interview was recorded on April 3rd, 2006. Richard Dolan, part one of two on Banal of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I'm really excited to have as my guest this week Richard Dolan. He's the author of the hugely acclaimed UFOs and the National Security State, Chronology of a Cover-Up, 1941 to 1973. Uh, he studied political theory at Oxford University. He was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Uh, he published the book in the year 2000. And it has gotten huge praise in ufology. Everybody says it's just an awesome book. I had the chance to read it uh, as winter turns to spring this year. I read the book, and I was just completely blown away by it. I should have read it when I first got into ufology. Um, I would have been. I, I wish I knew now what I knew then, pretty much. Now that I've read the book, and it was just awesome. And I'm hearing rumors that volume two will be coming sometime later this year, maybe early next year. I don't know. We'll find out in the interview. Uh, but welcome to Banal of America Audio, Richard Dolan. Thank you, Tim. Really nice to be on your show. Appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, let's start out a little bit with your background, your bio. How did you end up coming into the field of ufology? Yeah, I, uh, about 12 years ago, in uh, 1994, I was just a regular old graduate student in uh, Cold War Studies and History at the University of Rochester. Did your basic kind of standard Harry Truman, both of the CIA, the Defense Department, uh, you know, all of that, the basic stuff. How do we, how did Americans deal with the Russians and so on? Yeah. And uh, nothing with UFOs, nothing with flying saucers. And in the early 90s, I, I got the bug somehow. <laughs> got this question in my head, which was, did the uh, U.S. military actually ever take this this uh, thing seriously, because if they did, even if it was a mistake, I, I thought, it would at least be noteworthy for uh, the history of the Cold War. I mean, you think about it. Uh, if a, if a four-star American general thought for a little while that 
uh, some of these bizarre things might be aliens from another world in 1947, 1948. Hey, that would certainly be of interest to any kind of academic study. And uh, yet, of course, there's nothing you go through uh, formal academic libraries. I mean, there's no reference to UFOs in any way. So as a little project for myself, I thought, well, let me look into this and just see if there was any anything to this. Really, very conservatively, very almost naively, excuse me, going into this uh, from that point of view. And of course, uh, as I'm sure you realize quickly, there is an enormous amount of information here and a great deal of of confirmed military documents, government documents that did indeed show what appeared to be strong levels of interest by senior personnel in this topic, very responsible CIA, military people, and so on. And so that, hmm, that's interesting. And then you'd want to know, well, why were they interested? And it turns out, well, they were interested for some very good reasons. They were for example, many, many cases of apparent violations of sensitive airspace by objects that certainly did not look like conventional aircraft. They often looked like disc-shaped objects, for instance. Uh, objects that would move in very unusual ways, uh, zigzag or stop at a dime or take off like a bullet and so forth. And then uh, there would be cases where pilots would attempt to intercept these things. These objects were sometimes tracked on radar as well as seen visually. So there was a lot going on, and you read some of these memos, and these objects were very obviously being taken seriously by senior military personnel. I mean, hey, if I were in charge of the airspace of something as sensitive as the Oak Ridge Nuclear Facility or Los Alamos or Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, and something was invading the airspace of my facility, you know, I'd want to know what it was, too, and, and so did these guys. And so that, that got me really interested. And of course, the, the logical first question that a lot of them would ask was, is this Soviet? Did the Russians come up with some kind of radical, new, revolutionary technology? Uh, turns out, we did look into this, and it turns out there's no evidence to show that they did. Uh, next logical question is, is this some kind of deep, uh, black, secret program that the Americans had? Uh, another reasonable question to ask, without a doubt. And this is a little more of a tricky issue because some people think that there's a lot of reason to think that we did kind of invent flying saucers in the 1940s. I do not. I've looked and looked. Uh, I see little bits of hints here and there that we were indeed looking at some uh, unusual airframes, disc-shaped disc designs, and so on. I just see no evidence that we had anything operational going, you know, in the mid or late 1940s. And even if we did, that's interesting too. So there's a lot of interesting things about this early UFO phenomenon that really caught my attention. And so the next thing I knew, what started out as a, a personal pet project morphed into this uh, comprehensive, or at least pretty big fat study that I did. Yeah. Um, partly because I was looking for my book. I wanted to get a, a nice sort of straightforward, um, no grandstanding nice 500-page history that would lay out what happened and then what happened and then what happened without too much editorializing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really a fantastic book. I can't praise it enough. Um, it's like a it's like a history of ufology, really. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, um, it's funny because when I started writing this book, I really knew, when I started researching it, I should say, I knew very little about UFO 
researched the history of it, I barely knew what Roswell was. I hardly knew what Area 51 was. I mean, honestly, the most bare bones ufology 101 kind of knowledge is what I had. And it's interesting when I look back on it because I had a very good education compared with most people. I had a very excellent background in American history. And yet, I mean, how odd it is that you could go through a very extensive kind of in-depth um, program of study, which I did, and not really deal with any of this. Yeah. It was a big, big blank. And so I had to get myself up to speed. Fortunately, I had a good historical background to start with, and I had um, a pretty good knowledge as a, as a trained historian how to hunt through and uh, get my information and then kind of put it together. And uh, Writing that book was my education in ufology. And, and the funny thing is that uh, that that story goes from 1941 to 1973, and I cut it off at 1973. A couple of reasons. One is that I felt that it did kind of uh, form an, a nice point to break off the story, which, if you want, we can get into. But yeah. the other reason is I just I didn't have the knowledge or energy or physical strength to go beyond 1973 at that point when I wrote when I finished that book. Yeah. Um, it took me, it's taken me five years to really make sure I'm up to speed on the last 30, 35 years of ufology, and I'm, I'm at that point now, but it took a while. It was a, a huge education for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think uh, th this first edition of the, the book, um, it has a nice story arc to it, so it just sort of, it worked out really well the way it ended up. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. And a lot of time trying to make that a smooth read, by the way. Oh yeah, it was. It was definitely. It was. It was. Once you get going into it, you're like you're flying through. It mine's worn, so I carry it everywhere. I'm glad. Um, now, as an, as an author, uh, I guess, or like what as a sort of editorial choice, you you included a lot of sightings reports in the book. I did. Um, what was what were you going for there with including so many uh, sightings reports instead of uh, more of like instead of just a straightforward historical narrative? Well, I tried to do both. To be honest with you, um, I did. I had a lot of sightings in there. I tried, if you notice, to focus um, on military sightings and military-related. If it wasn't a military sighting per se, then I wanted it to be something that at least the military seems to have investigated. So my, my focus throughout was to show that this was a uh, topic that has significant national security implications. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about the book that I really felt it was important that um, I provide in, an, in a nice book form, I mean, on the one hand, something that's a narrative, but on the other hand, something that is somewhat of a reference book or somewhat encyclopedic. Not an encyclopedia per se, because it doesn't read like that. But, for example, I wanted someone, if uh, they had this idea, hey, what was that? Event in May 1957, and then you could you could use yeah. my book to look it up. Yeah. So um, that was my other basic goal, and so the book stylistically really is a um, a combination of, of those two different types of efforts, and it's um, at times maybe an uneasy marriage, but that was what I decided to do. Oh yeah, well it works well. I just wanted to ask you about that because yeah. you know, so I was like, there's a lot of things. And the other thing too is that. Um, I guess I did want a little bit of the sledgehammer effect. I don't want to just beat someone to death with, with fact after fact after fact, but I did feel it was important to emphasize to, let's say, an intelligent but skeptical reader that there is a mass of evidence. I mean, it's not even a mass. It's an overwhelming, huge amount of 
I mean, one signing after the next, after the next, after the next, and of really better quality than a lot of people would realize. So I wanted to emphasize that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a wealth of of uh, proof as we can provide it pretty much as far as sightings go, and that that helps a lot. Because otherwise, if you were reading it and you didn't believe in UFOs, you'd be like, show me your evidence, you know. Well, exactly. And so I wanted, I, I really wanted to convey a lot of, uh, kind of a bit of both. I mean, on the one hand, the evidence, on the other hand, the story. And there is a story in this in this first book. It's the story of, uh, well, a couple of things. One, this problem of UFOs as it dropped into the lap of uh, the American military at the end of World War II. And then the story of, of some civilians in the 1950s and then 60s to try to, to break the secrecy on it and ultimately the story of how that how that attempt failed. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty much the story arc I was talking about too, yeah. Because it's like, uh, well, sort of getting into the book now, um, seems like 47 was the year when it really sort of exploded and kicked off with um, Kenneth Arnold and Roswell and perhaps, right, absolutely. perhaps the beginnings of the MJ-12. Um, sure. The beginning of... of um, of ufology pretty much in America. Well, it was the beginning, you know, what is ufology, um, one might ask. Yeah, but, yeah, certainly the beginning of uh, flying saucer consciousness. Yeah. I don't think anyone was talking about UFOs that early. That, that was a phrase that came just a tiny bit later. But, yeah, I mean, the whole UFO controversy exploded onto America in that year. As we, in the early years, it was very common for people to talk about the whole thing starting out in 1947. And actually, the, the more we would research, the, the more we found that, no, actually, there were some really interesting UFO sightings in 1946. And then people discovered, hey, there's a lot of this going on in World War II. And then people say, hey, well, actually, back in the 1890s, there was a, a really interesting wave of odd sightings. And, and there was a wave around World War One in, in New England. And then the next thing you know, this is something that's really going potentially very far back. But yeah. of course, my book didn't deal with uh, the early stuff. Yeah, but it's like um, it's like that. That's when it sort of got impacted onto the consciousness of America. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, it fell into the lap of Truman and all, and then his administration and everything. And then uh, when Eisenhower was elected, there seemed to be like a concerted effort to uh, take the UFO issue and take the, the power over the UFO arena out of the executive office with the creation of the NSA and the Robertson panel. Is that like yeah, a I mean, observation? Uh, that's kind of the way I guess I would say. Um, what, what you had is, you know, first you got the Truman years, and from, from the time that the UFO uh, controversy hit America really in 1947 until the end of 1952, you got one president, it's Harry Truman, and he's the guy on the job. And what really happened was, was a series of crises that um, culminated in 1952, Truman's last year in the White House. And there was uh, sightings over the White House a couple of times, a couple of weekends, and there were massive sightings throughout the United States. A lot of them were military, and it was something that really got the intelligence community um, very concerned about, like, how do we how do we deal with this? How do we deal with it publicly? And in, indeed, what? What does all of this mean? But in the public relations um, part of it, they, the intelligence community, basically the CIA and, and Air Force intelligence, made a definite decision to take this problem and remove it, uh, as it were, one step further out of the hands of, of um, 
you know, even the, the standard military channels. And so you get what was called the Robertson panel. This is the last weekend of the Truman presidency in January 1953. You had a bunch of uh, Nobel caliber scientists who reviewed this for a couple of hours. The conclusions were already preordained. We know this now. Yeah. And um, and what they decided to do is to, um, well, they said, you know, there's really nothing uh, as far as national security that we have to worry about here. But we also need to sort of keep this issue very low-key with the public. And they recommended certain measures to do that. And so what happened during the Eisenhower administration was um, Project Blue Book, which had been the kind of public um, relations effort of the Air Force that was, you know, the public investigative body that the Air Force had. That was basically stripped of all personnel and was bare bones for the next uh, decade until it went under. And uh, a lot of UFO reports never went to Blue Book, and the whole thing did become more, much more compartmentalized and out of, out of the uh, public realm. So that's that a lot of the UFO reports that we know about, we, we learned about a few during the, the golden era of the Freedom of Information Act in the late 70s, and people were shocked when they said, wow, well, this report, this wasn't a Blue Book report, and neither was this one, and neither was this one. So there was this whole other channel of UFO reports that, you know, no one had really known to discuss because there was, there was just no knowledge of it. So, yeah, the thing became a bit more... Yeah, I think it became more secretive by degrees from the 40s and then into the 50s. What happened in the 1960s was a kind of crisis, uh, a second crisis, you might say, because there, there was the original one in 1952. But then there was another crisis in the mid-60s, and, and frankly, it was because there were many, many significant UFO sightings in this country, again, starting in 64 then big time in 1965 and then 66, so much so that the issue made it to Congress. And this was quite significant. It really hadn't made it to Congress in any major way before that. Um, and so, and, and the, on the other hand, the Air Force's explanations through Project Blue Book were becoming seen by a lot of people. It's just, you know, completely ludicrous. I mean, everything was Venus, everything was swamp gas, everything was balloons, and, and ordinary intelligent people started saying, hey, this is a joke. And the Air Force is really starting to lose credibility. This is the time of the Vietnam War, and I think the last thing the Air Force wanted was one more public relations headache. And so what they wanted to do was just unload Blue Book ASAP. And also, I think what the Air Force did not want was actual, true congressional hearings on this matter. I mean, if, you're, if you want to keep a secret a lot of the more sensationalistic accounts and, and sightings that have happened, and there were many that happened in the 1960s, and really the last thing you want is for um, a kind of open hearing on this where who knows what can leak out. Yeah, yeah. And so they, what they did was they ponied up a couple of uh, $100,000, $500,000, paid the University of Colorado to do a uh, what was supposed to be a scientific study of all of this, which Colorado did. The problem was that the guy running it was Edward Condon, who was a known, um, very, very openly skeptical person who really knew nothing about this topic and uh, made no bones about that. And his number two guy was a, a fellow named Robert Lowe, who uh, I believe had been in uh, CIA in the 1940s, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what we do know about Lowe is that he was, like Condon, hell-bent on a, a negative conclusion right from the outset of this. Um, and that there was a mutiny among the researchers midway into the product, project because they had become convinced that 
there seems to be something to this and that they knew the leadership of the project was just going to be dead set for a no conclusion no matter what. Uh, things came to a, a climax in uh, early 68 and, and the leading members of the project got fired, replaced with a new half of a crew and uh, that is what uh, wrote the Colorado report, which even that report, even though it was, uh, you know, Condon wrote well, the evidence shows that there's nothing to this topic. In fact, 30% of the cases in the Colorado report showed, uh, concluded unknown. And in fact, a couple of those cases were just within a scintilla of the writer uh, acknowledging that this is very possibly alien. <laughs> so there were a couple of cases even in the Colorado report that were really, you know, no one wants to come out and just say, yeah, I think it's alien. Yeah. But in fact, a number of those cases were really, really um, very persuasive. Anyway, what happened at the end of that, in 1969, the Condon report is issued and the Air Force says, okay, thank you very much. They washed their hands of it. We're not doing any UFOs anymore. Thank you very much. And we're gone. No more. Well, in a way that happened, but in, in another way it didn't because certainly UFO reports continued through the 1970s and 80s and they continue today. Um, it's just that there is no official government body that, you know, claims to be investigating them. But we do know that these reports happen, uh, that another, rather that these encounters happen, that the military still, of course, are going to be interested. Something comes into your airspace and it's not identified. Uh, clearly, you're going to investigate what it's all about. The problem is finding information about this is, ever since uh, the 1980s, it's been a real iffy prospect. And actually since uh, really the last five, six years, it's, it's been so difficult to get any kind of UFO-related information out of the government. Uh, one really has to wonder how long this, this uh, dark uh, period is going to last, at least in terms of not being able to get anything out of our government. Yeah. Um, and sort of like jumping back a little bit, uh, in 1951, Ruppelt, uh he's at a meeting, and there's a guy there, and, and uh, it's sort of shadowy, shadowy uh, reference to sort of like a secret controller oh, group. I know what you're referring to, yeah. Well, first, for some of the listeners who may not know, I mean, I'm sure many do recognize the name Edward Ruppelt. Uh Edward Ruppelt was the Air Force captain who at that time had just become uh, in charge of what what would soon be called Project Blue Book. And I think you're referring to an October 1951 uh, meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is very interesting because I'm glad you mentioned this. Um, there had been a very spectacular radar tracking of, of a, a very fast and unusual object out of Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Um, as a result of this, Edward Ruppelt wrote in, in his book, which he wrote about five years later, that there was a, a very kind of uh, high-level meeting with some, uh, some people in the aerospace community and some high-level government officials, I think he said, whom I, oh, I can't name, from an agency that I can't name, and maybe that's CIA, he doesn't really say. Yeah. Um, and that these individuals who weren't, not all of them seem to be actual government people, but Ruppel did say that they had total access to the files at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that were pertaining to UFOs. So these guys, whoever they were, were in kind of an unofficial, high-level group with a strong interest in controlling the information on the UFO 
phenomenon. He never said who they were. Um, when I read that, I mean, certainly it doesn't take a lot to realize that he's describing something that sounds very much like an MJ-12 type of group. And again, MJ-12 is, has become sort of a, a catch-all yeah, catch name for just the UFO control group, the nebulous um, guys like the cigarette smoking man, the X-Files, the group of individuals who uh, are imagined or believed to be the controlling group behind all of this. And by the way, I think there's very good reason to think that there is such a group. Absolutely. Um, oh, so uh, one of the things that I was surprised by when I read the book is uh, this I never really realized, even though I, I fancied myself pretty knowledgeable about the UFO subject, was the Blue Book really ran for quite a long time. Yes, it did. It ran, I mean, if you really want to count its earlier incarnations uh, under Project Grudge, it went uh, pretty much full guns from, uh, you know, 1951, and then had its heyday for exactly one year, right up until the very beginning of 1953, and then kept going in truncated form right up until 1968-69. It was closed down at the end of 69. Although really for the last couple of years, Blue Book was just a total skeleton crew, especially while the University of Colorado was doing its study. They, Blue Book almost totally advocated a kind of investigative role. But uh, yeah, it went for yeah, about 17, 18 years. Yeah, it really degenerated over, over that time. Most definitely. And most definitely. It seemed like there was a lot of... Uh, pressure from up top to bring the un unknowns down. Wasn't there a significant, like, at first it started out really high for Absolutely. And by the end it was like 2-1% or something. Yeah, you, you've, got a, you've got an excellent memory of all of this. What happened was in the earliest years, unknowns were typically at 15-20%. Um, it's pretty high. And then after the Robertson panel, w within a year of that, the, the guys at Blue Book started getting these... Um, memos, really, from, from the bosses up in the Air Force to, to bring the unknowns down to 5%. And then throughout the, the late 50s, I mean, they were getting it down to like 1% and 2%. In order to, did this mean their um, investigative techniques had improved? Well, no, absolutely not. If anything, they got worse. Um, but what they did do was, of course, force fit all kinds of possible explanations. Anything that could remotely be considered, you know, if you didn't investigate, hey, a lot of things are possible, and since they didn't do any investigations, uh, everything became Venus or weather balloon or, or possible balloon or, and if it was a possible, then in the subsequent editions of the reports, the, the possible would be eliminated and it would just be, you know, balloon or whatever, but some, something uh, totally conventional. It was ludicrous. And one thing I noticed from just looking at the Blue Book on the ones that passed through that gauntlet and still became unknown is that a lot of those are just the most innocuous, boring uh, unknowns of all. So they, like, you know, for example, a, a light that you'd see in the distance move to the left and then move to the right and then wink out after about a minute. That would be an unknown. I mean, who's going to get excited over that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, there were really very few or almost no spectacular unknowns, especially in the last couple of years of Blue Book. They just didn't let, if it was a really good report, it would either not be in Blue Book, which was usually the case, or they'd find a way to explain it away. It really is extraordinary. There's one case, um, 
that I think is particularly extraordinary from, from 1962. And this is believed to be a, a crash of a UFO right outside Las Vegas in April of 1962. In Blue Book, this was described very deceptively as two separate sightings. What had happened is an object was streaking across the United States at about 4,000 miles an hour from New York State not too far from where I am right now, across the United States out to Nevada. It was an object that, that caused the scrambling of jets out of Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix and also Nellis Air Force Base in, uh, in, in Vegas. Um, it was not a meteorite or a bolide or any kind of atmospheric thing. It was moving way too slowly for that, but, but way too fast for any conventional aircraft. 4,000 miles an hour is kind of in a very uncomfortable in-between speed there. Uh, Blue Book explained that as two separate sightings by using different time zones. So the, um, the sighting out, the object exploded outside of Las Vegas, and that was, that was said to be one thing, and then the object that streaked across the U.S. and was seen over Utah hovering for a little bit, that was supposed to be an, another thing described at two different times, but actually it was the same time. They just used different time zones. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, really, that's, you can't do that by accident. That was clearly a, uh, an act of intentional deception just to get out of having to explain a really difficult, difficult case. Yeah. And um, uh, the people who were uh, at sort of a, within the government at that time, in, let's say in 1952, excuse me, um, it's sort of a, a reference to like a UFO party. Um, of people who wanted the the truth to come out, and they were right. and they were sort of at at war with uh, the the people who wanted to keep it in house. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you find this happens throughout the history of the UFO phenomenon. It was happening back then, and it's happened. It happens now. It's, it's going on right now. Um, there always seem to be factions <clears throat> that develop whatever time period we're dealing with that look at this evidence that have access to really some good cases and decide, hey, you know what, this is this is important and and frankly people need to know about this and they don't deserve to be lied to about it. And and such a faction developed in nineteen fifty two and, and really developed for a couple of reasons. One um Hey, they just, I think the individuals involved, uh, such as Major Dewey Furnett, he was one of the better known ones, it was a retired Marine um, Corps, uh, Major Donald Kehoe, and uh, there were a number of other people. And they, they said, hey, you know, we have enough faith in the American people to handle the truth about this. We don't need to be treated like children. And B, um, it's... This is something of a disingenuous argument, but they said, hey, look, if you keep telling the military personnel that there's nothing to flying saucers, which indeed was the public line, then what's going to happen if, if uh, one of these is mistaken for some Soviet missile and you start a war because you haven't really informed your own military sufficiently? Yeah. The reason I think this is a disingenuous argument is because, frankly, these guys had to know that within the deep classified world, there were channels that existed to, that, that knew all about UFOs and they weren't going to mistake UFOs for something conventional usually. But, um, but these guys were able to make the argument publicly. So um, anyway, they tried to, to do this. I mean, during the, the great UFO year of 1952, 
um, in the ramp up to the Robertson panel in those months in, in the fall of 1952. By the way, that's when the National Security Agency was formed, right? Toward the very end of the Truman years, formed in total secrecy. No one knew about this for years. Um, you know, there was there was a a real possibility, some thought, that the UFO secret could come out. Um, and so you had really these two factions working very hard. The upper hand was always in the hand of the guys with, with you know, who wanted to keep the secret. Yeah, but it was like the first in-house battle uh, over getting it out. Yeah, the first big one, the first big one. Yeah. There was a little one a couple of years before that uh, in 1948 when the first um, project sign, kind of the earliest predecessor of Blue Book, they issued a report that went uh, got to the desk of General Hoyt Vandenberg, yep. the general of the Air Force, that apparently said that this is extraterrestrial or seems to be extraterrestrial, and, and Vandenberg had the report destroyed. Um, despite the fact that there isn't any single copy of this so-called estimate of the situation, no one really doubts its existence. Um, the, there are just too many sources verifying it. But, yeah, I think 1952 was the first really big confrontation, and uh, the cause of secrecy won that. And then, as I was saying a little earlier, the, uh, the issue publicly kind of went to sleep for almost a decade. I mean, there were sightings here and there. You had people who were claiming to be contactees and things like that, but there was really no serious traction until uh, really the mid-1960s in the United States. And then the issue just, bam, became very prominent again. Um, and you had another... Uh, sort of confrontation. Uh, this one, we don't know so much about within the military as we do between the civilian groups and and the military, but again, the, the side of secrecy won that one. Yeah, it's like um, a continuing, it seems like every time it builds to a head, the secrecy side wins, and then it sort of dies out for a while. Right, and as I'll be mentioning in, in my next volume, uh, this story continues in a very, very interesting way through the 1970s, into the 1980s, into the 1990s, for sure. Um, I mean, it happened every of one of those remaining decades of the 20th century yeah. in the 1970s. And all of these are caused usually by some kind of, some sort of crisis that occurs. In the 70s, it was the political crisis of Watergate. And what happened as a result of that? Well, you had a, a period in this nation's history in the mid-70s when uh, Congress really tried to reassert its traditional role uh, as against the what had been seen as a kind of accumulation of power by the executive. And one of the things that they pushed through, I mean, Nixon signed the order, but, but it was really under pressure, which was an expansion of the Freedom of Information Act. And then when Jimmy Carter became president a couple of years after that, Carter himself issued an executive order that dramatically strengthened that. Uh, so by the late 70s, I, I think of this all as a result of, of Watergate and, and the disillusionment with Vietnam, uh, the United States was probably in its most liberal state of mind that it had been in maybe ever. Um, and and the FOIA resulted in a real bonanza of, of documents for UFO researchers. The hope at that time was, you know, great. This is our tool. The, the FOIA is our tool to to get the, the real proof yeah. out of the government that this is a real phenomenon and, and that they take it seriously. And in fact, it turned out to be a, a great period, but it didn't it didn't give you the magic bullet that that had been wanted. A couple of reasons. And the one 
But even when Carter strengthened the FOIA, it really wasn't strong enough, to be perfectly honest. I mean, there was always the out for federal agencies, which was any information that would be seen as damaging national security was exempt. And so that's a huge loophole right there. Um, we know from the few documents that we've gotten out uh, that the UFO topic was considered top secret. We have um, one FBI document from the 1940s that states this explicitly. And yet, of all the documents that we received through the FOIA, basically none of them were of the top secret uh, level. All were of lower levels of classification, like secret or restricted or confidential. Yeah. What that means is, you know, let's say that UFOs per se are not top secret, but let's say that the the alien nature of UFOs, that's top secret or higher, right? Yeah. Therefore, any document that's only secret or only confidential, by definition, must not have reference to the ET or alien nature of UFOs. And so those are safer documents. Yeah. And some of those are still pretty amazing. Um, but they don't, they're not a a single, there's no memo from the president that says, yeah. what are we going to do about these pesky aliens? Yeah. So and none of those came out in FOIA. So it's kind of like the uh, the unknowns in Blue Book, pretty much. Yeah, but better. I mean, a better a better quality of, of cases. I mean, much more suggestive. You start reading a number of even these reports, these confidential reports. Um, I mean, they were still classified. They just weren't the highest classifications. And you read 50 or 100 of these, and you start to think, hey, you know, there's clearly something very, very bizarre going on. What happened was that um, the FOIA was was severely curtailed uh, during the Reagan years. In April of 1982, President Reagan issued an executive order that, that took a lot of wind out of the sails of the Freedom of Information Act. Didn't overturn it, but made it much, much less user-friendly, a lot more expensive, exempted NORAD uh, totally from the Freedom of Information Act, and that's important. Uh, and so then you go through the Reagan-Bush years with uh, there were various attempts from the inside to leak information out, it appears, but no, uh, not much of a public opportunity to yank these secrets out. You get to the Clinton years, uh, and it's a bit different. Clinton, like Reagan, actually, had a very, very open interest in UFOs. Um, but unlike Reagan, was a little bit more interested in some some government openness on on this matter, and so issued an executive order in uh, the mid-90s that was a real um, windfall for a lot of researchers, including the people in UFO, and really liberalized uh, some of the Freedom of Information Act provisions. So that, um, that combined with a number of inside efforts that um, included Lawrence Rockefeller to meet with Clinton people to try to open up the process for disclosure, as it was becoming called at that time. Uh, that's an interesting story, too, and it's something that I, I'll be writing about at length in the next book. But suffice to say that this crescendo also ended in ultimate disappointment. Um, this was a period in which the Air Force, again, took really, really smart initiative and issued its uh, infamous Roswell report. Yeah. And this came out in 1994. So again, when you get this 
this whole resurgence of the Roswell case and then this resurgence of possibility that the Clintons might release UFO information. And there is good reason to think that they were trying to do this. Air Force, boom, goes into high gear to um, basically beat the General Accounting Office to the punch because the GAO was also charged with looking into Roswell and they were much more critical. Yeah. The Air Force goes, bam, high gear, gets it done, releases a report before the GAO is even out of the, tr out of the gate and says, no, no, it was basically, uh, sorry, we, we thought it was a weather balloon. In fact, it wasn't, but it was a balloon. It was just a top secret balloon known as Mogul. Um, I'm sure many people heard of it. And then a year later, they said, and as, well, a couple of years later, they said, as for the claims of bodies, uh, actually, no, but these were, we were doing dummy drops in the 1950s, and I think people just got confused with the time frames and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really clever because they, um, they very, very astutely were efficient in getting that report done and, and dominating the public relations battleground. Yeah. And they got the media on their side, which they always do anyway. So, uh, so the whole the, the Clinton attempt of um, disclosure, I mean, that just went down in flames, too. By the end of the Clinton years, even before uh, Bush came into the White House, apparently there was already a covert movement to reclassify uh, many of the thousands of documents that had been declassified as per Clinton's executive order. And, and this information has only recently come out. Oh, wow. I, I myself was at the U.S. National Archives uh, in College Park, Maryland, just a couple of months ago uh, when this news came out. And here's, here's the deal. This is really quite fascinating. Um, we just discovered, and the, the chief archivist of the United States discovered, that someone has been reclassifying thousands and thousands of previously declassified documents. So then, in other words, if you were a UFO researcher or any kind of researcher, and in, in 1998 you were you got a document that had been declassified, yeah, and if that document was then reclassified, you would not be allowed to photocopy or present that document to anybody. Oh man, that's right, and that in fact is the case. Um, now that reclassification has gone full blast uh, since 9/11. Yeah. Um, but the, the point is that the chief archivist of the United States did not issue this order, does not know who or what agency issued the order, at least as of a month ago, that this was not known. I don't, I don't think it's known now. So someone's been reclassifying these things, and we're, we're really, we've gone into reverse gear at high speed yeah. in terms of, I mean, we've actually, we've gone to a point where in this country, um, the situation is almost diametrically opposite what, what the founders intended in the sense of government openness. That is, it's supposed to be that people are supposed to be able to look into their government and have privacy in their homes from government snooping. And in fact, it's exactly the reverse. And government can read your email, um, but you're not allowed to see what's going on in government. Uh, and that's very unsettling. And not to get overly political on this, I mean, we're talking about UFOs, but hey, uh, I argue it, that it does matter if you want, if you believe as I do in the value of UFO disclosure, then it does matter what kind of government you're dealing with. Yeah. Are you dealing with a democratic government, 
Are you dealing with a government that isn't truly democratic and that is, in fact, authoritarian in some form? Yeah. And so I feel that we need to know exactly what we are dealing with. Um, I think UFO researchers are, by and large, coming around and have largely come around to the idea that their government is not a, a truly democratic one. A lot of the old guard, let's call them the old guard UFO researchers, really were not ever of this opinion, and some of them still are not. But uh, the times, they are changing, and yeah. I think it, it's impossible, it is impossible not to see what's going on all around us. Uh, you know, unless you want to stop up your ears and cover your eyes. <laughs> um, and then uh, a lot of the audience, uh, my audience here, we, they're big fans of uh, esoteric radio, pretty much what, uh, what, what you got to listen to to find out any UFO information, and sort of like we're, we're like a little brother of esoteric radio. Um, and one of the key figures who emerged in the book uh, that I want to talk about a little bit, because I had never really heard much about him, but he was sort of like the first Art Bell, uh, Frank Edwards. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. He's sort of a cautionary tale in a way, because it's not like he was on top of the world as far as the media world goes, and then as he got into the UFO subject, things really uh, went downhill faster. So talk about him a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Frank Edwards, he was. He was like an early Art Bell, um, extremely popular radio host back in the 1950s. And... He, as you as you say, he had a very uh, a regular kind of frenzy sort of show that he had on a regular basis. He had a nationwide audience, millions of listeners. So yeah, a lot like Art Bell or George Norrie. Um, and and Frank Edwards frequently was one of the, the first guys to break all kinds of UFO stories. Stuff would get leaked to him, it would get on his show, and the, and the information would get out. Frank Edwards was also a very good friend of, of Major Donald Kehoe, who really was the premier UFO voice, a uh, voice, I guess, for UFO openness in the 1950s and 60s. And Kehoe was, uh, he had been a friend of Charles Lindbergh back in the day, um, and knew a lot of high-level Navy and CIA brass as well. Yeah. So he was friends with Edwards. So Edwards, there's one story, I you might remember this better than I do, I haven't, I haven't looked at it much in the last few years, but I did write about it. Edwards in the mid-50s um, lost his show. Yeah. And he lost it as, oh gosh, as a result of, he came to a head with the Navy, I believe, over, over something that they wanted him to keep quiet about. Yeah, I, I can't recall the specific case. I feel, I'm sorry that I'm a little fuzzy on that. Oh, don't worry about it. But, but you're right. Then he ended up, he lost his show. He got kind of, um, I mean, his ratings had been great. And boom, he was, he was out of a radio show. He still was a, a public name. I mean, everyone sort of knew who Frank Edwards was. And he ended up writing a hugely successful book in 1966 called uh, Flying Saucer's Serious Business. That's it. Yeah. This book sold something like half a million copies. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, you think about that. My book sold maybe 20,000 copies. <laughs> Edward sold a half a million copies of this book. Kind of a sensationalist book. I mean, not, not what you'd call a scholarly work, but really not a bad book in a lot of ways. There's a lot of decent information in there. <clears throat> and, uh, and he wrote a follow-up book in 67. Felt like he was on top of the world and then died, dropped dead of a heart attack. Uh, in in Kehoe's opinion, uh, I don't think Kehoe was willing to go out on record and say it would seem suspicious, but Kehoe did seem that, it, I think he implied that things did not seem all right with 
with Edwards' death. Yeah. It has to be said that there are a number of suspicious deaths that have occurred um, in the UFO field, and this has gone on for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Edwards' death is one. Uh, the death of a lesser-known UFO researcher named uh, Morris Jessup is another from the late 1950s. The death of Edward Ruppelt, the Air Force captain we mentioned. Ruppelt died in uh, 1960 at the age of 37 of a heart attack, just a year after he had revised his book. I mean, think about this. Ruppelt, in 1956, comes out of the Air Force and writes this book that is completely against the official Air Force line. Yeah. Air Force had been saying, there's nothing to this, there's really, we've got it all figured out. And Ruppelt writes this book, a very well-written book, in which he uh, very meticulously says, well, absolutely not. Uh, there are a lot of cases that got us very much worked up. He said, in fact, if you'd walked into a Wright-Patterson Air Force base in summer of 52, you'd have thought we were being invaded. And he said it was all because of UFO reports. This is not what the Air Force wanted to hear. Yeah. Within a couple of years, the rumors were out that Ruppelt, who was then now working for Northrop, uh, was under pressure to revise his book. And indeed, he did revise his book in 1959, came out in the early part of 1960. He added three chapters which totally debunked uh, UFOs, absolutely opposite from everything that he had written in, in the other in the original book. Said there's nothing to it. The whole tone of the book, in fact, of the last three chapters was just utterly sophomoric and childish, frankly. Very much unlike the tone of his uh, original book. And then the guy dropped dead. Just died. Yeah, that's one of the strangest aspects of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, how do you prove that a heart attack is a murder? You you cannot. But it is a fact that the... um, the ability existed even in 1960, even in 1955, to uh, to kill a person by means of chemicals that would uh, induce a heart attack, and that if you were not autopsied right away, I mean within a couple of hours, no one would know. And this absolutely existed. I'm not saying Rupel definitely was murdered, but hell, it's very suspicious. Uh, on top of that, <clears throat> there were other signs, in particular, around 1960 that, in my opinion, showed signs of really heavy-handed uh, national security pushing around of, of the UFO, of the people in the UFO field. Um, this was the period just in early 62 when the former director of the CIA, a guy named Roscoe Hillencoder, another friend of Donald Kehoe's, Hillencoder was going to go before Congress in the spring of 1962, and Helen Coder was going to talk about the serious nature of the UFO phenomenon and how how behind the scenes there was tremendous interest by the uh, national security community. I mean, think about a former director of the CIA, Helen Coder ran CIA from 47 to 50, going in front of Congress and saying this. Yeah, it's just it boggles the mind. And uh, Kehoe had been planning this with Helen Carter. They'd been planning it with members of Congress. Everything was good to go. Suddenly, at the 11th hour, Helen Carter sends a message to Kehoe saying, uh, sorry, but um, I think the Air Force is doing everything they could do. I think we should just get off their backs. Um, by the way, I'm resigning from the board of directors of, uh, you know, of our organization, and I'm, I'm going to have nothing more to do with this. Thank you. Goodbye. And that's it. Yeah. Now. 
with Helen Coder pressured, well, I think it's hard to say that, it's hard hard to deny that he was pressured. Are you going to be able to prove it? Of course not. Absolutely not. Yeah, there's, so there's suspicion, a lot of suspicious things. Yeah, that's uh, that's part one of the strangest aspects of that uh, old guard that you speak of at uh, the UFO research. Rupeld and Helen Coder both uh, ended up doing like 180s. And then, right, exactly. and then not living too much longer afterwards. Right. It, you know, when I think about it, I didn't write any of this in the, in the, the book. Um, I think because they really hadn't had enough time to reflect on some of, the, some of these issues. But it's my opinion, when I look at the early period, you know, why would the secrecy have been so important? Um, well, I think a couple of reasons, to be honest with you. First of all, there's just the, the very likely, strong likelihood that the people who had the information on this may not have known enough about what, what these aliens were. I mean, if, let's say you did recover technology at Roswell and, and probably at other places too. Yeah. So um, you're some super brilliant scientist and your job, job five years is to study um, these materials that my office gives you, and, and you don't even know where they come from, probably, because everything's compartmented. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm military, and I just say, hey, look, I can't tell you where it's from. I just want you to study it. And then suddenly, uh, a few years later, you have this eureka moment where you think, holy smokes, well, we can make this really amazing high tensile fiber, or we can you know, create superconductivity, or lasers, or whatever. We can improve our integrated circuits. You know what I mean? So not only do you have a... Um, a great chip in the Cold War in terms of technology against the Russians, but you have a nice ground floor investment opportunity, to say the very least. You know, and, and um, I mean, what's your motivation for wanting to give up this secret, basically? You know, you, you have no motivation yeah. for giving it up. Why? Are you going to share this with everyone else? I don't think so. Um, it's just too valuable. Um, and, and by the way, you know, in 1960, there wasn't this kind of uh, desperate pressure on our energy infrastructure either that we're experiencing today. Yeah. In 1960, the world was swimming in cheap oil, and it looked to uh, to almost every oil analyst in the world that hey, we're going to have this stuff, you know, for, for centuries and centuries, and we had more than enough time to come up with better means of energy in the future. Yeah. Well, guess what? Um, this is in 1960, and uh, this is 2006, and everyone in the world now wants to drive cars, and you got China, and you got India, and you got everyone with their SUVs, and suddenly uh, we're finding that some of these so-called fringe people are now being joined by mainstream petroleum geologists who are saying, hey, it does look like we might, after all, be peaking around now for all time in global petroleum production. Now, if, if that is true, I'm not saying it's definitely true, but there are some very uh, responsible people who believe it is true. Then, then we are facing, in our own civilization, the possibility of a massive, massive lockup and meltdown of our entire society. Because if you can't get gas in your car, then it's basically going to mean at some point you're not going to be able to get food in your belly. Yeah. Because our entire global agricultural system is also dependent on petroleum and basically on cheap petroleum 
fertilizers or petroleum based tractors of course everything I mean you just basically can't feed six and a half billion people in this world without cheap oil unless you got something to replace it yeah and indeed it's quite possible in my opinion that the UFO phenomenon may have or may have within it some kind of something to kind of help us out here yeah and so we're in a much more um, in a stressful situation regarding all of that than we were 45 years ago. So the secret keepers back then, you know, could just say, hey, look, look, it's all in good time. All in good time. Right now, we're just going to ride out the petroleum wave yeah. and, uh, and everything will be fine. And, and people really don't need anything more than what we've got. But that is very likely not the case today. I think so. So we're, I think we're much more likely to be headed toward a real serious crisis um, that could very well involve um, the need for UFO disclosure. The, the problem, though, is, I mean, you start getting into this issue. I mean, can you imagine how difficult it would be for any president to go before the world and and make such an announcement? Yeah, you'd have to be. He'd have to be a new president, it seems to me. Uh, a guy like Bush, I think, would have a hard time now. Um, I mean, his credibility is low among uh, many people already. I don't think he's got a, you know, but could you imagine if he tried to announce it? He'd say, okay, well, well everyone, it's come to my attention that uh, UFOs apparently are real. Uh, and apparently they are alien in nature. Yeah. Well, you just can't leave it at that because now you have a lot of other issues to raise. You know, it's like you can't be half pregnant. You can't half disclose. Um, there's a whole question of abductions now. Yeah. Suddenly, all these people who've been claiming alien abduction, hey, guess what? The biggest hurdle that, that we all, I think, have to abductions is simply the reality of UFOs themselves. I mean, UFOs, to some people, are pretty far out. Abductions are even farther out. And so if you don't believe the one, clearly you don't believe the other. Yeah. But what if the one is true? And suddenly you acknowledge that there are other beings who are actually not just out there, but down here on the ground with us. Yeah, yeah. And some of these people who claim that they've been taken, hey, guess what? Maybe some of these people are telling the story accurately. Yeah. So that's a hot potato. Then there's other hot potatoes, possibly even worse. Yeah. You have the whole issue of uh, rumored underground bases, underground infrastructure. Um. It is my personal contention that that this actually would really could very much very possibly bring a downfall. I mean, an actual downfall of the U.S. government with this kind of disclosure. And here's why: if you acknowledge UFOs are real, suddenly people like myself and all these other researchers out there are going to have a bit more credibility, for one. And a lot of these people are talking about reverse-engineered technology, massive infrastructure that's completely secret. Um, okay, well, if that's true, then on whose money are you building this infrastructure? Is it on, on tax dollars? Well, actually, I think that it's connected at least as much to uh, narcotics trafficking proceeds. Yeah. Securities fraud, that is stock market fraud, is anything else. Yeah. Uh, when you need secret stores of money, here it's nice to have classified tax dollars, but it's even more convenient to have unvouchered money altogether. Yeah. And the amount of money in these other areas is immense. I was just going through this morning 
um, for the umpteenth time a um, a news story from 2001 that that had to do with Donald Rumsfeld. Now this is very important. Everyone should know about this. It will be in my book. In July of 2001, Rumsfeld was uh, in front of Congress talking about the Pentagon's budget and uh, problems associated with the budget and, and missing money from the Pentagon. Yeah. And specifically, what Rumsfeld said, and I am not making this up. You can look it up. <laughs> he said, in fact, I'll give you the exact quote. I think I've got it right here. But he says, our accountants tell us here we go. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. $2.3 trillion. When you think about the Pentagon fiscal year budget for 2001, it was $310 billion, about one-eighth the amount. So you've got eight times this figure that's missing. I mean, the mind reels at such a thought. How long did it take to get to 2.3 trillion? That's one question I had. No one asked that. Um, where did the money come from? Where did it go? Well, I assume a lot of it went into private banking. It's the 2.3 trillion? Yeah. Um, how is this even possible? So what I think happened is that some significant portion of this money probably went into secret infrastructure. Um, I think the rumors of underground bases are very likely based on fact, uh, at least in some significant cases. And so you've got a very significant infrastructure that does not officially exist, but that does exist. And so my point simply is with UFO disclosure, uh, this kind of information is much more likely to come out. And if and when it comes out, people are going to realize that they've been had um, yeah. And so the real question will be, are we going to then come to a point of, let's say, people having revolution in the streets or an iron-fisted kind of open totalitarianism? And uh, I don't really know. I, mean, yeah. I don't think any of us knows the answer to that one. But. Um, and now, uh, talking a little bit about the uh, schizophrenic nature of the Air Force, where uh, they, they sort of publicly nonchalantly acted like UFOs weren't a big deal, but then uh, GNAP-146 is probably one of the more infamous uh, military orders yeah. in the UFO field, and that pretty much shut down any chance of um, people from the from the Air Force going out and telling them, telling, any, telling the press, telling any researchers, or telling yes, anybody about their UFO sightings. Absolutely, and in fact, uh, by all appearances, GNAP is still in, in force today. It's gone through a number of, yeah, it's, I, I've, I went through this issue with uh, fellow UFO researcher John Greenwald, of, uh, who's known for his website, The Black Vault. Yeah. Um, and we, we both believe GNAP is still in effect. There's no, there's no indication that it isn't in effect. There, there have been revisions. There was another revision in 1977. Still, everything's just the same as before. There was a reference to it in a 1996, I believe, document by the Air Force. So it, it apparently is still good. But you're right about schizophrenic because the UFO nature has, has forced kind of schizophrenia on our entire society in, in terms of the Air Force and other military branches. Let's talk about the Air Force. Um, right, they've been saying for years, well, no, we've got it under control. Yeah, there are some sightings we can't explain, but there's no evidence that they're either alien or unexplained technology, etc. Nothing to worry about. Go back to sleep. On the other hand, 
we have time and again um, excellent evidence to show that the Air Force has gotten very worked up over this. In the case of uh, Chan 146, this is in order, stands for Joint Army Navy Air Force uh, publication. That originally came out in the mid 1950s, early 50s. That was a series of regulations over how to report, like if you were in the military, how you would report certain kinds of events. And and Chan 146 includes. UFOs, and in fact, it explicitly states unidentified flying objects, and in fact, explicitly differentiates that from other kinds of things that skeptics would call UFOs, like uh, foreign aircraft or meteors, or you know what I mean. So that UFOs are are separate from all of those other categories. Yeah. In other words, real UFOs are treated as a category in Janet 146, which is kind of interesting. Uh, to this day, that is the case. So, and what that meant is if you, according to Janet 146, if you were to see a UFO, you had to report it along certain channels, military channels, in certain manner. And, of course, you, the key of it is you're not, you're not allowed to disseminate information about this uh, without authorization. And so that was essentially a gag order. Uh, right away, Janet began to apply to civilian uh, commercial pilots. And so, in fact, in the mid-50s, this became an issue. There was a petition uh, that was signed by something like 400, I believe, uh, commercial airline pilots against this uh, gag order. Um, and that, that failed, that petition failed in the mid-50s, though. So it did get some traction uh, for a little while, and there was some resistance to it, but of course it, it didn't go anywhere. To this day, uh, I know pilots um, who, you know, they, they've seen UFOs. I've, I've spoken to quite a few of them, and uh, this goes on, it goes on this year. It's been going on nonstop for year after year after year. These guys will see things in the sky, and frequently they, typically, let's say, they don't report it because if you report UFOs, it really can damage your career. I've been doing this many times, and in fact, we know that this has happened. It was a famous case in 1986 of a of a Japanese pilot who was going from uh, Alaska to um, Japan. Yeah. And uh, over the ocean, I mean, for about a half hour, noticed this enormous object. I mean, drew a explicit picture of it. This object was tracked on radar. The Federal Aviation Administration representatives discussed it. They said, yes, it, it happened. And uh, this pilot was uh, basically pushed to a desk job for a long time as a result of that sighting. Yeah. It can be bad for your career. Yeah. Um, okay, now uh, let's talk a little bit about NICAP. Um, they're like the first UFO supergroup almost. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. NICAP was, um, it stands for National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Yeah. Actually, NICAP was originally founded in 1956 by a really interesting guy named Thomas Thompson Brown. Yeah. Brown, Brown himself is a, a legendary man, uh, did a lot of brilliant, let's say, work on kind of on anti-gravity and, and um, electrogravitics. Uh, the, the original draft of my book didn't have a lot on Brown, and, and the, the, the common revised version of my book does have 
quite a, quite a bit more on Brown, fortunately. But Brown was interested in UFOs and started NICAP in the late 56, kind of as a, I mean, as a scientist would start it, you know, wanting to just sort of gather information on this, uh, at least that's what it seems like. And what happened was um, Donald Kehoe, uh, the, who was also known in the UFO field and had written a, uh, written at that point two books on the topic and was known in the Navy and in the, uh, the intelligence community. Uh, Kehoe sort of took over the group in a, a meeting in January, I think, 1957, and they kind of ousted Brown. They, uh, what Kehoe wanted was a political approach to the UFO problem. And he, and that was his dedication for the next decade or a little bit more, which was to try to get the matter of UFOs in front of Congress. They, in other words, what NICAP tried to do was to take the high road. That is, they worked under the assumption that the United States government was what every kid grows up believing it's supposed to be, which is a government where you, you know, you elect your assemblyman, you elect your congressman, and they, and they fight for you in Congress, and that's how the whole system works with checks and balances and all that stuff. Yeah. All that stuff that we now know doesn't work at all. But in, in the 50s, this was the assumption that, I mean, they weren't so pie-in-the-sky idealistic as to realize that there weren't problems. I mean, obviously they did. They knew that there was secrecy and they knew that the system wasn't working right, but they believed in the system. I think that's fair to say. And so year after year after year, Kehoe and other NICAP leaders, including uh, a couple of people who are still alive, like Richard Hall, um, worked and talked with members of Congress to try to get open hearings on UFOs. And there were a number of years in the late 50s and early 60s when it looked like they just might succeed. I mentioned the, um, the Helen Coder episode of 1962 when Helen Coder was about to, um, to do this, and this was being sponsored by NICAP. Well, there were other instances as well uh, prior to that. And so, but every time it also seemed like right at the last minute, uh, some congressman would come up to Kehoe and say, hey, look, sorry, it's just it's not going to happen this year. We can't get enough votes to make it happen. Uh, let's let's go for the next session, and we think it'll go better that time. And this happened. It was almost like an annual thing, like the Boston Red Sox just not making it for a series. And so, um, and that, that was a story year in, year out. Now, in that time, NICAP also did some very, very excellent work in terms of just organizing and collating UFO data. And, and really, NICAP was the, the first major competitor to the United States Air Force publicly as an authority of UFOs. Yeah. And, and they were able to pull it off because, A, they just they had really good people. Yeah. Uh, B, a lot of those people had military backgrounds, and we were not talking... Uh, like guys like me, you know, so-called liberal, radical, pinko, commie, whatever, <laughs> even though I'm actually none of any of those things. But yeah. um, but the guys on NICAP were, um, I mean, they were retired admirals and um, and other officers in all branches of the military. I mean, these are very respected individuals. Yeah. And so you couldn't really impugn their patriotism and all that good stuff. So NICAP really was able... They, they had the goods, and they were a true uh, competitor and threat to the Air Force's uh, stature on this in the public relations field. And, and frankly, I mean, NICAP had no money to work with. 
Uh, everything was bare bones. Kehoe was constantly trying to raise money. Um, the organization always seemed like it was on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, despite all of that, I mean, NICAP made a, a really fantastic show of it. Um, yeah. But, of course, they just, they were not, they were not able to do it either. And, uh, you know, when you don't have access to, to the institutional levers of power that the Air Force had, um, it's kind of difficult. They, they tried to, um, just before the Colorado committee got going in the late 60s, there was uh, going to be this congressional hearing on UFOs in 1966. And it did take place, but it was just massively disappointing. Uh, they had people like Carl Sagan being consulted, and, um, you know, no, no one in NICAP was invited, even was invited to speak. Yeah. And they were invited to attend and not speak. And, and so it was a real disappointment, you know, the, the big congressional hearing that they pushed for for a decade. Uh, they weren't even invited to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So. And um, now, uh, there's a lot of talk uh, that, that they were sort of like infiltrated by the CIA. Some people think it's never been really outright like proven that that was the goal, but well, it certainly seems that that not, not proven happened. But, but very suspicious. Yeah. And uh, this was information that came out really as the organization was in its death throes in the 1970s, after Kehoe was really not active in it. Um, yes, that's right. There are a number of things you really have to wonder about. First of all, um, before we get into the whole situation with NICAP, people, this is really not radical anymore, but let's, uh, maybe it is for some people. It's, it is very well understood now that the CIA had been involved in infiltrating a lot of organizations in the 1950s and 60s, and, and absolutely U.S. major media uh, was, was very much in debt with the CIA. Yeah. All these were things that people the guy in the street in the 1950s and 60s really did not suspect, and I think would have been very angry about had they known at the time that this was happening. You know, I mean, if CIA's got 400 paid informants and journalists within mainstream U.S. news media, hell, that's, that's important to know, and we didn't know about that until the mid-1970s. Um, they also made it a point to, to have a lot of influence in cultural issues in the 1960s. And so what they would typically do uh, you know, famously, there's an organization called the Congress of Cultural Freedom. This has uh, been very well documented that the CIA infiltrated this and controlled it without even most of the members realizing. You know, all you do is you place a couple of guys in key positions. The, the best position is the number two spot in the organization. A friend of mine calls that the spook spot um, because it's not particularly visible. But it's very influential, and this is a guy who, who uh, theoretically would report back to CIA and kind of keep tabs on everyone. And also, if, if need be, push the organization into directions that wouldn't necessarily be good for that organization, if, if so decided. So regarding NICAP, NICAP was an organization that came on as a, as a major threat to the established uh, status quo of UFO secrecy. We all know this. We know uh, in the 1953 Robertson panel report before the origin of NICAP, but that one of the directives or recommendations, I should say, was to monitor the existing UFO groups. This was explicitly stated. Keep an eye on them. Uh, we also know that there, um, that 
a number of the people who came on board with NICAP in the late 50s and early 60s were, in fact, CIA um, members. Um, not all of them were known to be CIA. Yeah. In fact, one of the most prominent was a guy named Colonel Joseph Bryan, who became ingratiated with Kehoe and in 1969, ousted Kehoe from the, from the board of directors. Uh, Bryant, turns out, had founded the CIA Psychological Warfare Unit and was um, very, very upper-level CIA man. Yeah. And all those years had been involved in NICAP. Now, that's true. And, um, and then there were, there were other CIA connections with NICAP, too, that maybe we don't need to go into the detail here, but you can read my book and read about it. But the point... The point is that, um, you know, what was the direction that they may have pushed? Well, Kehoe, I think, came to believe that, um, I mean, his, his focus for years and years and years, he had focused on the Air Force as the kind of root of secrecy. But it does appear that toward the later 60s, Kehoe started to look at the CIA as as possibly the power behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for Kehoe, he was also at that time starting to get a little older, was really not as involved physically in managing the organization and kind of uh, was becoming, I think, a little more of a figurehead than he had been in the years past. So um, there's also close CIA connections, in my opinion, with uh, Richard Hall. Richard Hall was Kehoe's number two man for years at NICAP. And... and um, I don't mind saying this, by the way, because Hall didn't like my book, so. <laughs> um, at least the good people at the International UFO Reporter uh, allowed me to rebut Keo's, uh, Hall's review a couple of years ago. Anyway, uh, Hall, back in the mid-60s, um, first of all, he came to NICAP out of Air Force Intelligence. Uh, Keo wrote about this. And... And we know uh, was in communication covertly with CIA in 1965, sending them NICAP reports. Uh, Hall came out with that, and he, you know, explained it as, as nothing devious, anything like that. That may not have been, uh, but it is true that a lot of these people in NICAP were very, very chummy with CIA and other intelligence. And maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe you, you could argue it's just those those groups of people that become interested in UFOs that get into the field. Conversely, you can easily argue that, you know, you start working for the CIA. Maybe you don't stop working for the CIA. And, um, and you know, you do some, some work for them from time to time. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't pretend... Uh, again, getting proven information on a lot of these people is, is very difficult to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, now, uh, the other group uh, that sort of emerged at this time was APRO. They were sort of like a friendly rival of NICAP, but they had a different point of view. They weren't about uh, going after the Air Force. They were more research-oriented. Right. Yeah. Um, APRO, uh, Aerial Phenomenal Research Organization, was founded by a married couple named James and Coral Lorenzen. And... Uh, and, you know, APRO was a, a really impressive organization. They, um, they were based out west. They weren't the uh, political eastern Washington-based NICAP. Um, and friendly rivalry, and at times an unfriendly rivalry. There was sometimes, uh, as years went on, there was some harsh words exchanged from, from time to time. But 
But it's true. I mean, the Lorenzans felt, they said, hey, look, you know, NICAP, you're just spinning your wheels with all this political disclosure. It wasn't called disclosure then, but the same thing, you know, trying to force this issue open. They said, look, just try to be scientific and just study the phenomena and be done with it. And this is what APRO tried to do. And by and large, I think they were, they were very successful in doing that. Again, like NAPCO on a bare bones, uh, like NICAP, a bare bones budget. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no money in the UFO field. Um, anyone listening who thinks they want to write a book and make money on this, I would say, well, you know, go for it. Write your book. We don't expect you're going to make money on this. Um, and, and there's no, there's very little funding available. I mean, the only money that's available might be from some rich sugar daddy if you can find them. Yeah. Good luck and then let me know, please. <laughs> um, there, there isn't, I mean, you think about, like, the U.S. federal budget in, um, the last one I checked was fiscal year 2006, was $2.5 trillion, right, the entire budget. As far as I can tell, none of it uh, was allocated for what you could call UFO research. And none of it officially. I mean, uh, I assume that there's classified money there. But the point is, if you want to research this, you're not going to get money from from the U.S. government. It just is not going to happen. And so UFO organizations, again and again, and this is the case now of MUFON for all these years, which has succeeded APRO and NICAP, basically. Uh, they have no money. They have no money. By the way, there's constant rumors about MUFON's infiltration as well by government uh, you know, intelligence operatives. There's certainly, just like with NICAP, there's a, um, a very large number of, of senior MUFON people who have definite ties to the world of intelligence. And again, you could just make the same argument. In the case of MUFON, like APRO, MUFON overall has been... Uh, kind of non-political, sort of in between NICAP and APRO. Yeah, yeah. Um, MUFON, you know, went through brief periods where they seemed to get kind of politically energized, and then other periods where they were like absolutely non-political and and promoted what they call scientific ufology. Yeah, uh, kind of like the other um, major organization, at least in the '70s and '80s, CUFOs, the um, Center for UFO Studies. Uh, same thing, founded by J. Allen Hynek. Scientific ufology. Um, and so some people have argued, and I, you know, again, I, all, all, I, all you can say at this point is, is, is conjecture that this is the case, but I've argued that MUFON's direction um, was, that MUFON was really just like a vacuum cleaner of UFO reports yeah. uh, to collect these things up and then forward them to the relevant authorities in, uh, in the intelligence community uh, you know, allowed to exist as long as it didn't rock the boat too much. Yeah, yeah. And um, that could well be the case, frankly. I mean, there's no question, none, that uh, groups like MOFON and KUFOS have been consistently monitored by the U.S. intelligence community. I have it on very good inside authority myself um, that this, so like, in other words, that UFO conferences are Frequently, I mean, the important conferences are attended by members of the intelligence community whose job it is, is to, uh, to keep tabs yeah. on, on the UFO people, as uh, one person said to me, <laughs> the UFO people. So, um, 
Yeah, and, and we're we're an object of of monitoring by by a portion of the of the intelligence community. And it's sort of like uh, like MUFON sort of grew out of the ashes, really, of uh, NICAP and APRO, and like they followed. Yeah, well, well, they up at the same pit when they were sort of dying out. With that's right. Move, they actually, for a period of time, all three coexisted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, MUFON was founded by Walter Andres, who had been prominent in APRO. Okay. And uh, was, uh, you know, not too happy, I guess, about the leadership of, of the Lorenzans. The Lorenzans, um, I mean, I never knew these people, but uh, the impression that I get from reading about them was that they they didn't really have what you'd call an inclusive leadership style. And so they, they kind of kept things to themselves. They didn't really train the next generation of leaders. Uh, and so... I, I sense that there was some frustration among people in the organization. So Andres bolted in 1969, forming what was then called the Midwest UFO uh, Network, and that became the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON. Um, and he took a lot of APRO members with him, and the Lorenzans were furious. I mean, they just never forgave Walter Andres for that. Um, but, you know, APRO did... Um, Keep, keep along for a number of years, right up into the 1980s when the Lorenzos just became, uh, you know, uh, sick, uh, yeah. old, and, and then died. And then really no one was there to replace them. When they died, uh, that was the end of APRO. And um, one of the things I asked a lot of people about, because I, uh, I was at the X conference last year and I saw Walt Andrews, and he gave a really great presentation on uh, all the different groups. Um, and one thing that really sparked my interest, and you probably heard more about it than I have, is these... Uh, infamous missing APRO files, how they're, like, locked down now and no one can get to them. Well, yeah, what happened when, um, yeah, this, is, this has been known for some time, and, and, uh, but no one can get to these damn files. Yeah. The Lorenzans died in, uh, in, 60, in 86 and then in 88, I think. Um, I forget who died. Jim died first. I can't remember which died first. Yeah. By the late 1980s, they, they both died, and... Um, I remember asking around about this, too. You know, who's got... Because the Lorenzans, you think they had 30, 35 years of files. That's my other phone. I'm just ignoring that. Um, they had all these uh, files and files and files. I mean, yeah, they wrote a bunch of books, but a lot of this stuff that they'd collected, of course, never made it into the books. Yeah. And so where is it, and what did they collect? I mean, when you think about it. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, it, it uh, was gobbled up by some some guy who just put them apparently in his in a garage. They were locked away. Uh, the only thing that I can learn about this guy is that he's very unfriendly and won't let anyone near the files. Yeah. And so they they are gone, gone. I mean, it's it's really a horrible it's a tragedy. Yeah. That these files. I mean, they could be destroyed for all we know. Who knows what what happened to them? Yeah, it's really bizarre. <clears throat> yeah, it is. You get a lot of that in this field. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, one of the sections in um, in the book that really made me think uh, was uh, thoughts on Heineck. And you sort of mentioned that he, in in today's ufology, he's been romanticized, really. Um, oh yeah. But it's but it's important to remember that um, as ufology was growing, he was sort of looked at as as a debunker at first, and and we can't necessarily, you know. Um, Put up the bronze plaque of him yet? Yeah, that's right. I, I caught I caught some grief over this actually more than 
when I think about it, probably more than any other single section of my book was what I said about Alan Hynek. Yeah. And it wasn't all hostile, but, but even people who liked my book, a few of the people who knew Hynek were um, uncomfortable with, with what I wrote. And here, here's my take on Alan Hynek. Um, he seems like he was a very nice man. And so for me to write what I did probably was only possible because I never knew the man personally. Yeah. Uh, because had I met him, I probably wouldn't want to say anything bad about him. Um, but the fact of the matter is this. Alan Hynek um, was on board with the Air Force through the 1940s and 50s and 60s as a consultant to Project Blue Book. All through that period, right up, on, right up until the mid-60s, Hynek was a loyal scientist who could be relied on to give the Air Force explanations that they wanted, you know, of cases that they would send him. Uh, he was a, a junior member participant in the Robertson panel. I mean, very junior, but he was there. He signed on to everything and apparently was quite enthusiastic, according to the records that we have of that. Uh, yeah, so, and, and then the other thing that I learned was that Hynek, this is according to the memoirs of Jacques Vallée, yeah. in his um, very valuable diary he published on his Forbidden Science, and, and Hynek had been for five years um, sort of under the tutelage of arch-UFO debunker Donald Menzel. Oh, really? At Harvard University. They worked, yeah, Menzel was, was the Harvard Astronomy Department. And uh, from 19, from the late 50s into the early 60s, Hynek worked there. He had a, a five-year stint over there um, where he was a junior member of that astronomy uh, department and in which he and, and Menzel apparently were on very friendly terms. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean a heck of a lot, but it has to make you wonder when these two are, you know, I mean, that, that, the, that the current on the top and the currents below aren't, aren't moving in the same direction, I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah. Um, Hynek really didn't come around to promoting UFO reality until... He had really stepped in it big time in the public relations game in 1966 when he issued his famous statement about Michigan swamp gas. Yeah. I mean, this is during when there were all of these sightings and it was making the news. And Hynek was rushed out by the Air Force to explain it. And he talked about, about uh, swamp gas rising and interacting and creating these, this lighting effect. And, I mean, the press was just like, What? That made no sense at all. I mean, it really. And years later, Hynek said, "Yeah, I mean, that was really kind of a rather um, not my best moment." But but the thing was, what happened was Hynek just suddenly, I mean, looked like an idiot, and and the whole institutional structure of the Air Force looked really really bad. My feeling, and all I can do here is guess, but that. Hynek, you know, probably looked at his, his life at that point, and he said, it's 1966, and in 1966, no one knew how this whole UFO thing was going to turn out. It looked like it just might result in some kind of open admission at this point. So here's Hynek, and he's thinking, what pony have I hitched myself to here? I, I look like a fool, and you know what? In fact, there is very likely, you know, something going on here. It was also at that time that another scientist enters the mix, and this is um, 
the great James McDonald. Yeah. McDonald was an atmospheric physicist, very prominent scholar in his field. And McDonald got interested in UFOs. He had seen a UFO in the 50s, very quietly sort of followed along. And then in the mid-60s, really started investigating a bunch of more cases, making waves. He got access. He was able to get access to some of the blue, uh, the blue book files, saw the um, Robertson Panel report, which he wasn't supposed to see, and he did see it. So mad, he walked into Hynek's office and famously slammed his fist down on the table and basically said, what the hell have you been doing all these years? Yeah. And I think that shook Alan Hynek up. So Hynek had his own um, conversion experience, and let's not take that away from him. But the point is that is this a sign of his greatness uh, because he finally came around or, or something else? UFO researchers, I mean, we're just so desperate to latch on to any person of any semblance <laughs> of prestige in the field. Uh, with a guy like Hynek, he was an established professor and so on, and so... I think the uh, the tendency for people in the UFO field is to say, all is forgiven now that you're one of us, yeah. whereas we love you. Um, okay, fine. But Hynek, even after the closing of Blue Book, appears to have maintained a relationship with the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. um, there were various statements he made in which he indicated he was still uh, getting paid as a consultant on various matters. Um, and most recently, in a book... Um, published by a writer, Greg Bishop, who was Gregory Bishop's a friend of William Moore, the infamous William Moore. Bishop, Bishop wrote uh, just a year ago that uh, Heineck was even involved in promoting um, uh, false information to, to Paul Benowitz. Uh, Paul Benowitz was a scientist who was, who was studying possible UFOs out um, in the southwest in New Mexico. And, uh, and that Heineck, according to what Bishop wrote, actually gave Benowitz a computer that had been wired by uh, the intelligence community uh, yeah. so that they would be able to monitor him in, in 1981, I think this was. Wow. Now, I don't, I've asked a couple of people, this is true, no one knows. Uh, I asked Jacques Vallée if he thought it might be true. Vallée never looked forward to my book, but he didn't get back to me on that one. So, I don't, I don't know, but... But there is reason to think Heineck had a long-standing relationship with the U.S. intelligence community. And all I would say is, in a case like that, you just have to be wary of who you're dealing with. And, and that goes for, for people today. I mean, there are people who are in the UFO field that, that openly have had a background in U.S. intelligence. And maybe they're straight shooting. Um, and... But but even my attitude is anyone, I mean this, anyone who's got, comes into this field out of the intelligence community, um, if they don't state it up front, you know, we should be very suspicious of these yeah. people and what their motivations are. And if you find out years after the fact, that that's just not good. Uh, and there are, there are a number of such people in this field who have such backgrounds. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big thanks to Richard Dolan for coming on the show. His website is www.keyholepublishing.com, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E, publishing.com. The book, of course, is UFOs and the National Security State, Chronology of a Cover-Up. 
1941 to 1973. You can get the book pretty much anywhere. Uh, it's so well established. It's one of the biggest books in the UFO field, so you shouldn't have a hard time finding it. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go to his website. You'll be able to pick it up. Grab it, read it. You're going to love it, I'm sure. Uh, big thanks to Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. I want to give a big, super huge thanks and kudos to BenAllOfAmerica.com's Leslie, who will be pending her one-year anniversary column at BenAllOfAmerica.com this coming Tuesday. Uh, Leslie, you have become an amazing writer, an amazing contributor, and someone who's really helped keep the manalofamerica.com ship running. You've also become a great friend of mine. Uh, thanks for being a part of the team. Thanks for helping us out so much. Thanks for your support. Hopefully we'll be celebrating many more years of working together as our adventures take us further and further into the strange world of esoterica. Who knows where this amazing journey is going to end up, but hopefully we'll all be watching it together and it's going to be a blast to see it unfold. Also, I want to give a plug to Leslie's blog where she is running a special contest in conjunction with the Sci-Fi Channel and Ghost Hunters, the TV series. I mean, this is big time, folks. Let me give you the information about it. Have you ever captured what may be an unearthly spirit on a photo? The Debris Field, Sci-Fi Channel, and Ghost Hunters bring you the Ghost Photo Contest. To enter, you must have a photo of a ghost, or what could be a ghost, and reside in the U.S. The contest will run from April 28, 2006 through May 28, 2006. At the end of the contest, everyone will be allowed to vote on their three favorite photos to decide the winners. Voting will be from May 29, 2006 to June 6, 2006. Photos will be posted at thedebrisfield.blogspot.com. And let me spell that out for you, T-H-E-D-E-B-R-I-S-F-I-E-L-D dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. And ghostphotocontest dot blogspot dot com. That's pretty simple, ghostphotocontest dot blogspot dot com. I don't, I don't think I need to spell that for you. I think you can figure that one out. And you can find out more information about how to enter the contest at that website there, ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. The prizes, I know you want to hear about the prizes, and I do too. Let's hear what they are. First place, you'll receive a Ghost Hunters Season 1 DVD collection and Ghost Hunters Keyring. Second place will receive a Sci-Fi Channel t-shirt and Ghost Hunters Keyring. And third place will receive the Sci-Fi Channel t-shirt. Here is, again, the web address for more information on the contest, how to enter uh, the prizes, and, and some of the pictures that have already been sent in. You can find them. They're already up there at ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. So there you go. That's a, that's a super huge contest with real prizes, and uh, check that out if you can. Next week, Richard Dolan, Part 2 of 2, we're going to be talking about more classic ufology. We're going to be talking about modern-day ufology. Um, we're going to be talking about the world at large and geopolitics a little bit. So you're going to get just a whole host of stuff. That will be next week, May 6th, 2006, 566 at BenAllOfAmerica.com. B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. That does it, folks. 
Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benal, signing off.